Well, hey, what's up, everyone? How are we? Good. Are we excited to be here this morning? Yeah, pretty excited. Okay, good. If you've got your Bibles, go ahead and get those out right now. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some people coming down the aisles right now that would love to get a copy into your hand. And once you've got that, go ahead and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. That's where we're going to be this morning. 1 Corinthians 6. My name's Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. I'm really excited to be with all of you today. Can I share a story with all of you? Is that okay right now? A little story time. Is that all right? Fantastic. Um, I grew up in the Chicagoland area. I went to school in downtown Chicago at a school called Moody Bible Institute. And while I was there, I worked a part-time job at a little coffee shop called Starbucks. Have you ever heard of that place? Yeah, so I worked at Starbucks. Uh, I worked at a Starbucks at 111 East Chestnut, which to a majority of you is going to mean absolutely nothing. But this Starbucks was on the corner of Chestnut and Michigan Avenue. And so it was a, it was a pretty busy Starbucks. We had a lot of interesting customers, a lot of famous customers at this Starbucks because we were underneath these luxury uh, condominiums and we were around the corner from the Four Seasons Hotel, which is a fancy hotel. There was another hotel called the Drake Hotel just down the street as well. And so we served coffee to a lot of famous people. I've made coffee for um, Jerry Springer. Do you know him? Jerry, 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 that Jerry, that Jerry, he would come in every morning. He was one of our uh, regulars. I've made coffee for NBA executive and head coach Pat Riley. Um, I made a venti 2% sugar-free vanilla latte for a one Sandra Bullock. Do you know her? Yeah, a little up-and-coming actress named Sandra Bullock, yep. When I handed her her coffee, she looked at me and she said, thanks, sweetie. So we had a little thing there for a while. <laughs> um, but it, well, it didn't last very long because another girl walked in eventually. Her name was Carrie, and I gave her her drink for free, and we eventually got married. So that worked out a lot better for me. Um, like I said, I was working during college. So I worked Saturdays a lot. I'd open the store, and uh, I'd be there at 4.45 in the morning, which was like really, I mean, it's really early. No one should wake up that early. I'd wake up earlier than that, actually, because that's how life works in order to get to work on time. And, do you think as a college student that I went to bed any earlier to compensate for the loss of sleep? No, I did not. And so I was not the happiest employee. I was not the brightest barista in the bunch. And that, that was okay, though. It was okay because in Chicago, it was early. You're tired. I'm tired. I don't want to see your face. You don't want to see me either. Let's just get you through the line as quickly as possible. This was no Chick-fil-A, hey, how are you doing? My pleasure, smile kind of garbage, okay? None of that. This was like... Let's just, that was the code. That was the code in the city. Just, just, let's just get this done as quickly as we possibly can. So one Saturday morning, I open the store. I'm working one of the cash registers, and we have this rush. We've got two lines out the door. And I'm wearing a hat because in Chicago, because of health code reasons, you had to wear a hat. So I've got this bill on my hat. I'm not even looking at people's faces. I'm taking the order. I'm taking their money. I'm giving them the change. I'm writing it on the cup. We're just getting through the line. And then all of a sudden, this one customer walks up, and he says slowly, I'd like four venti cappuccinos, not too wet, not too dry. And I'm like, like I'm not even going to go into the art and science of like how to make a drink like that and what that means and the implications of that or to understand what this customer might desire from those things. And so I, I look up at him with just this look of disgust. Like, who, who do you think you are in the midst of this rush at a time like this to order drinks like that? And I look up, and who do I see but, lo and behold, Will Ferrell. Saturday, I kid you not, Saturday Night Live's Will Ferrell, he's there, he orders this, these drinks, and, and, he, and he sees my evil eyes just glaring at him. I am just, I am tearing a hole through his face right now. 
and he's like, and he, he goes, whoa, he goes, whoa, 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 whoa. Don't kill me, I'm just the messenger. <laughs> and, and I blacked out. I fell, my head hit the coffee machine, I was out completely. No, I didn't really, but like the adrenaline shot through and I was like, oh my goodness, it's Will Ferrell, I, I can't believe it. And so we made his drinks, he like tipped really generously, he was super nice, he was everything that you would expect him to be in that moment. Just a really nice guy running an errand for friends, picking up drinks in the city of Chicago. But listen, not everyone was as nice as Sandra and Will. And yes, I'm on a first name basis with both of them now. Um, we had a regular customer, another movie star who lived in the building above us. And I'm not gonna share his name with you, but you would think because of the movies that he's in, he, he would be charming and kind of like this offbeat humor and he'd be a nice person, but but he wasn't at all. This guy was miserable and he'd walk in with his friends and he'd always be wearing sunglasses and he would ignore us and he'd order his drink or his friends would order his drink and he'd sit at a table with them and he'd drink like a quarter of it and a quarter of it would be spilled on the table and on the ground and he'd leave his mess there and we have to clean it up. This happened all the time. And now I understand that with these stories of celebrities and whatnot, that my expectations of them are based on movies and television shows uh, where they're pretending to be someone else. And I have no right to have these expectations, but listen, I had expectations of who these people were when they walked into the store. It was just the reality. It was what it was. Listen, the same goes for each and every one of you that would profess to be a follower of Jesus Christ. You have ex that people will have expectations on your life. Whether you like it or not, people are going to expect you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and people know that in your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your family, they're going to expect you to be a certain way, and address a certain way, and talk a certain way, and listen to a certain kind of music, and maybe vote a certain kind of way, and whether you like it or not, whether those expectations are justified or not, they are real. But listen, just because they're real doesn't mean they're of the utmost importance, because God has certain expectations on us. And those expectations are of the utmost importance. Now listen, these expectations, God doesn't demand us to live up to them in order that we would earn his love and earn his approval, but, but God generously and kindly in his love invites us into and empowers us into a new way of living as followers of Jesus Christ. And, 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 and that, that involves a certain degree of integrity. At the core of it is, is, is living a life of integrity. That's why at this point in our study in 1 Corinthians, this, this section is called Integrity Matters. Because as followers of Jesus Christ, having integrity is of the utmost importance as we live uh, with a watching world around us. And if I could simply define integrity, it would be this. It's when who we are lines up with what we do. When, when who we are lines up with what we do, we have integrity. There is character. There is power in that. And we have impact. In fact, that's our big idea this morning. It's this. My life has impact when what I do lines up with who I am. My life has impact when what I do lines up with who I am. When we have integrity... Um, probably one of the most common objections I've heard, you've probably heard this too, uh, to Christians and to Christianity in general is that we're a bunch of hypocrites. Have you ever heard that before? Christians, I can't, I can't handle them. They're just a bunch of hypocrites. And listen, there's, there's some reality to that claim. Because on this side of eternity, 
who we are and what we do are never going to perfectly line up. They're never going to perfectly match up. And so I think the sooner we can just own, listen, I'm an imperfect person. I fall short and apologize for those things and own those things. I think the better off we'll be. But listen, Jesus Christ died for you and for me, not just to free us from the penalty of sin in the future, so that we would be able to live with Jesus in glory. He frees us from the power of sin right now. And he empowers us to live a life no longer enslaved to our sinful passions, our sinful desires. And over time, through the power of the Holy Spirit residing within us by faith in Jesus Christ, we should see what we do line up more and more with who we are. Never perfect, but growing in some way. And maybe not always up and to the right, but by God's grace, becoming more like Jesus Christ over time. And our difference should go much deeper than just superficial things. The music we listen to, what we wear, how we vote, the difference should, it should be deep. And then people should wonder as they watch you walk in your life, they should say something's different about that person, and that person is generous, and that person is forgiving, and that person is kind, and that person is not always perfect, but they are humble, and they own their mistakes, and they love well. Who we are in Jesus Christ should inform what we do, and how we behave, and how we act. We should have integrity in order that we might have impact for the kingdom of God. Now, Paul, in this letter to the Corinthians, he loves this church, and, and he went to this church, and he preached the gospel, and he's so grateful for what God has done in their lives, but listen, what he's concerned about is he's not seeing integrity in this church. Who they are is not lining up with what they're doing, and he's noticing some problems, and my hope for us this morning is that as we dig into 1 Corinthians 6, we'll see uh, a couple different areas uh, where the Corinthians were, were struggling. And I want us to hopefully understand and see the lies that they were believing. And by God's grace, we'd be able to identify those in our own hearts. And by his power and by his strength, we'd be able to move forward from this place with a greater desire and a greater understanding as to how to live lives of integrity so that we would have an impact for the kingdom of God. So if you're with me right now, say I'm with you. Let's dig in now. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 1. Let's start reading. Follow along with me, verse 1, Paul writes this, he says, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this Life. And so let's stop here for a moment. Here's the problem that the Corinthians were dealing with here at the first part of chapter 6, the first half of this chapter. What was going on was members within the church were having problems with one another. And Paul calls them grievances. And we're not exactly sure the nature of what these grievances were. As we'll see later in the chapter, we'll begin to understand they're probably concerning money or property and this sense of getting defrauded by another member. And they were... They were problems, but they were smaller problems. And, and in Paul's mind, though, the bigger problem was you've got these problems within the church, but, but you, you're taking them into the public, you're dragging them into the public, into the court system, into the court of the public opinion, and, and why are you doing that? Don't you see how crazy that is? He says two times in these first three verses already, do you not know? 
And we're going to see he uses that phrase more throughout this chapter. chapter. Do you not know? Do you not understand that you as saints, and this reality is for all of us in this room right now, that saints aren't just important religious dead men and women, that if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're a saint. He said that as saints, one day in glory, you will reign with Jesus Christ and you will judge the world and you will judge angels. That is going to be what you are tasked to do as saints. And if you're able to do that, if God is going to equip you to do that one day, how much more able are you to try these trivial cases? Do you understand what he's doing? It's an argument from greater to lesser. And so this is the problem that Paul sees in the Corinthians. He keeps writing in verse 4. Look there now. He says, so if you have such cases, these are trivial easy to navigate disputes between people in the church. He's not talking about criminal issues, major criminal issues. Paul will later write to the Romans in Romans 13. He'll talk about the authorities that God has sovereignly put over us to handle those sort of things. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about these trivial, easy to navigate cases, disputes between members of the body of Christ. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. You should be embarrassed that you're doing this. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? Verse 6, but brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. Now take note of this in verse 7. Paul writes clearly, he says, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You're already losing if you do this. To which the Corinthians would say, well, then, then how do I make this wrong thing right? What avenue, what course of action can I take? And Paul says this, look. He says, why not rather just suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? That sounds miserable. But it's what Paul, it's what God's word would call us to do. But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And so, to summarize again what Paul's saying in these first um, few verses is this. Paul's, Paul's saying... There are problems in your church, and, and you are handling them incorrectly. Uh, why are you doing this when you have the capability and the competency to do this in-house? Now, why, I think we need to stop and ask, why is Paul so concerned with this particular matter and this issue? You know, is Paul just this entrepreneurial, church-planting kind of guy, and he wants the brand of this church to be squeaky clean so that people will kind of keep coming to the church, and it'll keep growing, and he's kind of like a PR agent, and he's managing their image? I don't think that's what Paul's getting at here, because I think what's weighing on Paul's heart in this matter in the Corinthian church is, is, is the weight of their witnesses on the line. The credibility of their testimony to a watching world is on the line. And he's saying, by, by dragging these matters into the court of public opinion, by trashing one another in the court system, in front of other people who are unbelievers, it's already a loss for you. You think you're making the wrong thing right, 
but you're just making it worse. Your actions lack integrity when you do this. This is not who you are. And who are you? Verse 11. You've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of Jesus Christ. That's who you are. So act like it. So the first thing Paul calls the Corinthians to, the first thing that we are called to in this moment, right now, through God's word is this. I will choose to be wronged in order to have impact. That's the first thing we see. I will choose to be wronged in order to have impact. I will suffer wrong. I will be defrauded. I will be mistreated. I will be gossiped about in order that I might have impact for the gospel, for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what we're going after as disciples of Jesus. And I will choose to be wronged in order to do that. But is that easy? Is that easy to be wronged? Come on, is it easy to be wronged? Yes or no? No, it's not easy to be wronged. It goes against the very fabric of our being. Because what do we want? We want justice, right? That's what we want. We, we crave justice, and I think that's good. I think that's hardwired into us because we're, um, we're made in the image of God, and our God is a God of justice. Our God is a God who is going after justice, and one day, key words there though, one day, God will reign over the new heavens and the new earth with perfect justice. But, but here's what this passage is calling us to. As we wait, as we journey through this life, with this hunger for justice, sometimes it is better to choose to be wronged. It is, it is better to lay down one's rights for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's hard, right? Because in America, we are all about our rights. We are, it is rights, 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 and my rights, and as followers of Jesus Christ, we are called to lay those down for the sake of Jesus, for his fame, for his renown. Paul says it clearly. Why not rather just suffer wrong? Like, what's, what's going to be the worst thing that happens? Why not suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? And listen, we are not called to suffer wrong. We are not called to be defrauded. We are not called to be mistreated as an end in itself, as if there's something noble about being a doormat to those around us. Paul says, when you try to wrongly um, handle being wronged, it's already a loss for you. Why? Because when you, say you were to take someone to court and try to make the wrong thing right, you're not just losing and paying a court fees and attorney fees, you are trading in your impact. You, 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 are, you are losing integrity and trading in your impact when we wrongly try to make a wrong right. We lose our impact. And it's counterintuitive to us to choose to be wronged. We hate it. It goes against every fiber in our being. That's for a variety of reasons. There are three, three reasons I've got for why we wrongly respond to being wronged. One reason is ignorance. We're just ignorant of, of, of any other way. Uh, maybe we've been walking with the Lord for a long time. Maybe we just joined this family of God and we're, we're unaware. We're, we're simply unaware of any other way of dealing with problems like this. And so when someone hurts us, when someone wrongs us, we, we think, you know what? Like, I've got to fight. I've got to fight for my rights and I've got to litigate and I've got to defend myself and I've got to make sure that this person pays for the wrong that they've done. 
and we're ignorant and we, we think that there can't be any other way because that's obviously what's right. What's right couldn't be that this person would wrong me and they would just get away with it. Well, what I would say to you is that there, there is a different way and I think one of the first things we need to do if we're ignorant of any other way is we need to ask God. We need to ask God for wisdom. We need to say, Lord, like, give, I need wisdom right now. How do I handle this situation, what this person, brother, a sister in Christ has, has done? How do I handle this? And it's the importance of biblical community. It's the importance of being involved in a small group and, and getting the people around you and saying, hey, can you help me process this? And can you mediate this? And can you step in and help me to make this wrong right? It's, you know, if, 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 if you need to step into the church and, and call a pastor, one of us would love to be able to help and, and, and navigate an issue, uh, mediate an issue that you might be having. There is a different way. Sometimes we wrongly respond to being wrong because we are ignorant of any other way. Sometimes we wrongly respond to being wrong because of unmet expectations. Unmet expectations. And so when we entered into this family of God, we thought, man, like everyone in this place, they love Jesus. And man, they're going to be so different. It's going to be so awesome. It's going to be so different than my regular family, which is so messed up. Everyone's going to be kind and, and care for me. And no one's going to do. And then all of a sudden, it's great until it isn't. And you're like, oh my goodness, the people in this room are like just as messed up as the people outside. And you don't know what to do, and your expectations are shattered, and all of a sudden you're responding the way you would naturally respond because of unmet expectations. Uh, we wrongly respond to being wrong because of unmet expectations. One last reason we wrongly respond to being wrong is we're just rebellious. We're rebellious in our hearts, the rebellion that exists inside of us, and you know, maybe we've maybe we've covered offenses in love and We've overlooked some things and we've forgiven some people and we've navigated some ways that people have wronged us, but we've, we're, we're sick of it. And I know that Jesus would call me to turn the other cheek in this instance, but I'm not going to do that right now, not today. Now, this person is going to pay for what they've done. And even though God might call me to forgive in this instance, I'm going to make sure, I'm going to make sure that this wrong is made right. And so we wrongly respond to being wronged with a rebellious attitude, a rebellious heart. See, here's the problem. In all three of those instances, when we wrongly respond to being wrong, here's what we're doing to the watching world around us. We are communicating to the world that we treasure our treasures more than we treasure Jesus Christ. That when someone mistreats us or gossips about us and we feel the need to go out and fight and defend ourselves, that we that we treasure our reputation more than we treasure Jesus Christ. And what God would call us to is sometimes it's best to, to choose to be wronged for the sake of the gospel, to choose to be wronged in order to have impact in the world around us. You see, at the center of our faith, at the core of this way of living, is a God who was wronged. Jesus Christ, the only sinless man in all of human history, was falsely accused of crimes he didn't commit. He was abused verbally and physically. He was mistreated willingly. None of that was laid upon Christ unwillingly. Christ chose to suffer. He chose to be wrong. He chose it all the way to the point of death. 
And, and, and not, a, not a painless death, not an honorable death, not a dignified death. This was a death that was intended to inflict the maximum amount of suffering on the sufferer. This was a death that was not honorable. Now, Roman citizens weren't allowed to suffer this kind of death. It was a death of shame. It was a death that said, you're less than human. You're an animal. It was a death that said, you are shameful. It was a humiliating death. And Christ suffered the wrong willingly. Not without questions, not without pain, not without agony. Jesus Christ screamed out on that cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he endured it. Christ chose wrong. Why did he endure it? Why did he go through with it? The writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was set before him, Christ endured the cross, despising the shame. And so Jesus endured it. He, he chose to willingly take upon the wrong and the suffering for the joy that was set before him. What was this joy? This joy was the promise of a, of a future reward. And what was this reward that Jesus was looking toward? Well, it was in part the security and the salvation of his people. That, that, that Jesus chose to be wronged for your sake. You, who if you look in verses 9 and, 9 and 10, you who were once all of these things, Christ pulled you away from sin and brought you into his family, and he washed you, and he made you clean, and he justifies you, and he sets you apart, and he gives you a new heart. He empowers you to live a new life, this Jesus. And so if this is our Savior, if, this is, if we profess to follow him, can we follow him and, and separate that from suffering, from being wronged? I don't think we can. The writer of James says this, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let nothing have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And I think a life without trial, a life without suffering, a life without being wronged, is ultimately going to lead to a life where you're not seeing increased Christ-likeness, and you're not going to see the impact that you want to have for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to live lives of integrity. Who we are in Jesus Christ needs to increasingly line up with what we're doing with our lives. And in part, God calls us to choose to be wronged. It's not easy to choose to be defrauded. But in order to have greater impact for the gospel of Jesus Christ and his kingdom, this is what we're called to do. And now Paul doesn't stop there. There's a whole another section that we're going to go into right now. Are you still with me now? Say, 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 yeah, not okay, fantastic. Because we still got more. We still got more here. So let's look at verse 12. Paul takes a right turn. We're going to go somewhere different right now. Paul says this. He writes, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both, one and the other. And the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, never. 
Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, and he quotes Genesis 2.24 here, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? Okay, listen, there's a lot there, and Paul just took a hard right turn into completely different territory, but we're going here because it's where God's word is going, and here's what Paul is calling us to here in this section. I will choose restraint in order to have impact. I will choose restraint in my life in order to have impact. And so kind of jumping back up to the very beginning of this section in verse 12, Paul's probably quoting this common Corinthian phrase, uh, all things are lawful to me. All things are lawful to me. And where, where did this come from? Why were they saying this? Why is Paul using this here? Well, from the best that we can understand at this time, what was going on in the Corinthian church was they were abusing their freedom in Christ. And they were taking their freedom in Christ to an extreme. And they were saying, because my relationship with Jesus Christ doesn't depend on what I do or don't do, I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. And Paul's saying, yes, uh, your relationship with Jesus Christ is established as a free gift of God. It's true. It's absolutely true. But you also have to understand that your culture around you is saying that you can do whatever you want. That if you have an appetite, if you have a hunger for something, go out and fulfill it. And this was appealing to them, right? Because it's, it appeals to our flesh and our natural desire to do that. But what Paul's saying is, while you might say all things are lawful for me, you need to understand that not everything you choose to do is going to be helpful or beneficial to you. Here's what Paul's saying, in essence. He's saying, yes, Jesus Christ has set you free. But he has not set you free to sin. He has set you free from sin. Christ has set you free from sin. The Apostle Peter, he echoes this idea in 1 Peter 2.16. He says, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but, but living as servants of God. Paul's saying, don't use your freedom and your liberty in such a way where you will be overpowered and enslaved by your sinful desires. Choose restraint. Choose restraint in order to have an impact for the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is now your master. You are no longer enslaved to your passions and your appetites and your desires. You are a slave to Jesus. You are now his temple. Live for him. Glorify him. Thankfully, our culture is so different, right? So different. We don't have to worry about this at all. So we're done. Let me pray. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, it's shocking how similar it is. Our culture today would say that we have this physical appetite for food. And so if you're hungry, go satisfy, go out to eat. We have this desire for sex, and if you want that desire fulfilled, go to the bar. Use an app. As long as you're two consenting adults, make it happen. It's okay. Look at pornography. It's fine. It's just a physical thing. You're just satisfying an appetite. As long as you're not harming anyone, you're good. Listen, God gave us sex. God created. It is a gift from God. And that desire inside of you was put there by the Lord. But the world would say something very different about our sexual desire. It would say it's merely physical. 
And the Corinthians said the exact same thing. If I'm hungry, I eat food. If I want sex, I go out and get it. And what Paul's saying here is the stomach. He said the stomach doesn't, there's not an eternal plan for your stomach. Your stomach is destined for destruction, but your body, when Paul uses the word body here in chapter 6, he's not talking about just our flesh and blood and our animal tissue. Paul's talking about the whole self, physical, emotional, and especially spiritual. And he's saying the body's not destined for destruction. The body is destined for resurrection. And yes, while you're satisfying a physical urge with food, that physical urge is temporary. That, that, that sexual desire is different. It's not a mere temporary desire. When you hunger and thirst for that sexual desire, that impulse, that appetite, it's actually a hunger for something deeper, an eternal longing for a relationship. That's what's at play here. That's what's at stake. That's what Paul's trying to communicate. And that's why God has set sex to exist within the holy, permanent covenant of marriage. And anything outside of it is sexual sin. And it's a problem, and it's serious. And Paul lets us know why it's so serious. In verse 15, he says, sexual sin is serious because it hurts our Savior. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? No, never. When we commit sexual sin, instead of choosing restraint, we harm our relationship with God. And what we think is done in the privacy of our own homes or between consenting adults, or no one can see it, and it's merely physical, it's not merely physical. What Paul is communicating here, what we need to understand, is that we've been united to Christ. And Paul says when we sexually sin, it's an offense against Jesus Christ, against who he is, against the body of Christ. This isn't just a private matter. This isn't just a physical matter. This is, it's deeper. There's deep spiritual consequences to these actions. It hurts Jesus Christ. And not just that, our, our sexual sin is serious because it, it hurts ourselves. Verse 18 says this, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And so initially, Paul's super clear here. Those first four words, flee from sexual immorality. And there's no playing around with it. Run away from it. Flee from it. Sprint from it. Just like Joseph uh, sprinted away from Potiphar's wife. Flee from sexual immorality. But then he says something that's a little more confusing. He says, every other sin is outside the body. But sexual sin is against one's own body. So what's Paul trying to get at here? I think what Paul's trying to say is, since sexual sin isn't just a physical thing, it's much deeper, there's a spiritual component to it, and since sexuality is supposed to reflect the oneness and unity between a couple, and it's supposed to be an image, a shadow, a picture of the oneness and unity between God and his church, that when we commit a sexual sin, we are in some way tearing up the fabric of our very being internally as a person. That at our core, we are doing deep spiritual damage. You know, our world would say, be careful um, of, of STDs and unwanted pregnancies, but they will rarely ever get into the emotional and spiritual consequences. The, the bonds and the baggage that happen when an individual sleeps around. I mean, I've, I've never met a couple in premarital counseling or here at the church or anywhere where they're like, I wish my spouse was more promiscuous before I met them. 
Have you ever heard that before? I've never heard that before, and yet our culture would say, go out and experience those things. Fulfill that appetite. Fulfill that hunger. It does so much damage because it's against God's design. And we are only beginning to understand the physiological effects of of, of pornography and and addictive tendencies that it's so similar to certain drugs. And and those are just the emotional, physical components. That doesn't even touch on the spiritual um, damage that's being done. What Paul's trying to communicate here is that sexual sin is serious. It's a problem. It was a problem for the Corinthian church. It's a problem for our church. And what God would call us to do is he calls us to choose restraint. Practice restraint. Practice self-control. Because ultimately, if we don't, we lose our impact. We're going to lose our impact here in this world. And yes, if someone finds out, because so often we hide that kind of sin, right? We keep it hidden in the privacy of our own homes, and we try to block other people out, make sure they don't find out. And if they were to ever find out, certainly my reputation would be tarnished and I'd lose my impact. But not just that. Even if you keep it a secret and hidden in your life, it will affect your impact. You are God's temple. Do you think God wants to empower a temple that's living in secret sin? No. You you will lose your impact if you are practicing even secret sexual sin. If we want to have impact in the world around us, we need to choose restraint. We need integrity. My life has impact when who I am lines up with what I do. And here in God's word today in chapter 6, God calls us to do two different things. I, I, I will choose to be wrong, and I will choose restraint. But what fuels this? What fires this up? What presses us forward to do these things? Well, look at the end of verse 19. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. And here's the last thing I want us to see. It's this. Never forget that you are not your own. Never forget that you are not your own. You know, I think one of the biggest lies that we believe in our culture right now is that we are these self-determined, autonomous individuals. And that I could do whatever I want. And that as long as I'm not harming someone else, I can go out and live however I want. And maybe you wouldn't profess and you wouldn't say, like, in this moment that you believe that. But I think that lie is... is, is such a big lie in our culture that many of us believe that subconsciously. That this is my life and I can do what I want. I really believe that. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are not your own. Your money is not your money. Your life is not your life. Your body is not your body. You've been bought by Jesus Christ and the price that he paid for that was with his blood. And to some of you, you're like, that sounds miserable. No one owns me. No one has the right to to make a claim on me. Let me tell you that that what I'm sharing with you right now, this idea that that, that Jesus Christ came and, and, and with his blood he has bought you, it's the greatest news in the world. Because so many of us have believed this lie that that we think that ultimate freedom lies in, in doing whatever I want and building my kingdom, and accruing treasure, and defending that treasure, and, and fulfilling every appetite, and hunger, and desire. And Let me tell you that many of us in this room have been down that path, and that path leads to destruction. That path leads to unhappiness. That path leads to perpetual dissatisfaction. That path 
is an enslaving path. And it's the path the world wants you to take. But there is a better way. And Jesus Christ frees you from it. The only people who are truly free are the people who serve Jesus as their master. You are a terrible master of yourself. We are terrible masters. Your money, your possessions, they are terrible masters. Giving into your appetites and your hunger and your sexual desires, however you so choose, terrible master. There is only one master worth serving, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the good shepherd. He bought you. And if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are his. And so press into the reality that you are his child. Believe by faith that Jesus Christ bought you. He secures every single promise in his word for you. The same faith that saved you is the faith that will change you. And as we live by faith, who we are in Jesus Christ will hopefully, God willing, by his grace, line up more and more with what we do and we will step into this life of integrity and our lives can begin to have earth-shattering impact on those around us, living for his glory, his kingdom, and his renown. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that it is clear. I thank you that it is powerful. Lord, sometimes you call us to some hard things, some difficult things, some things we don't want to hear, some things that make us uncomfortable when we hear them. But Lord, we won't back down. We want to hear your word. And as we hear your word, would your spirit convict us and move us toward action? Or would we not merely be people who look into the mirror and walk away and forget, but would we look and would we, by your strength and your grace, change? Help us to become like you. Help us in the circumstances that we face to choose to be wrong for your sake, for your kingdom, to have impact. Help us to choose restraint, God. What a battle, what a struggle. But through your spirit, God, I believe we can have self-control. And at the end of that, we can find joy, that we can find peace, God, and that we can begin to be empowered by your spirit and have true kingdom impact. Help us, God. Thank you for your son. We thank you that you have bought us, that you've purchased us, that we are now yours, that we are your children, that you love us, that nothing we can do can ever change how much you love us, that you love us with an unconditional, perfect love. We are so grateful for that. Would that fuel us and fire us up to go from this place to live for you? You've washed us. You've set us aside. You empower us, Lord. Help us to live for you, to glorify God in our bodies. We pray this in your powerful name, Jesus.